This is Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is sponsored by The Forward. Stay up to date with unlimited access to news, culture, and opinion all through a Jewish lens. And for our listeners, for 2NJB listeners, get six months of The Forward for 15 bucks. Visit forward.com slash partner offer and enter promo code 2NJB to get an exclusive offer for podcast listeners. Also in collaboration with Arutz Sheva, IsraelNationalNews.com. And last but not least, in collaboration with Australian Jewish News, check them out at ajn.timesofisrael.com. As we record this episode, we're about two weeks after Operation Guardian of the Wall a.k.a. Israel's fourth war with Gaza. In the 12-day war, Hamas shot thousands of rockets on innocent civilians as the IDF retaliated against military targets in Gaza, doing everything it could to harm as few civilians as possible. While Operation Guardian has, of the Wall has come to an end, there is another battle that is ongoing, one that probably won't end anytime soon, the battle for public opinion. Israel is fighting an uphill battle when it comes to advocating its case to the world, and some say it's not doing the best job. As the Palestinians have a sophisticated propaganda wing, reinforced by a chain of influencers and celebrities like the Hadid family, John Oliver, and Trevor Noah, we have, well, not much at all. Even our biggest celebrity, Gal Gadot, refrained from stating her clear, unequivocal support for Israel. So... Onto that almost empty stage steps Rudy Rochman. Rudy is a noted speaker and writer on Jewish rights and an avid advocate for Israel worldwide. He, he was born in France but made Aliyah at the age of three. He studied at Columbia University where he joined students supporting Israel and served as the president. Since then, he's been creating viral content on Israel and on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We are super thrilled to have Rudy Rochman on the show today. Thank you so much Hello. for joining us. Thank you for having me. So right before we jump in, we uh, want to give a shout out to MasaIsrael.org. Guys, oh, sponsors. Yes. Masa Israel uh, Journey is sponsoring this episode. If you're listening, you probably have some interest in Israel. Um, it's, a, it's a wild guess. Uh, Masa Israel Journey is the marketplace for long-term opportunities in Israel. You can explore your career path. You can live out your passions. You can make a positive impact on the world. And what's great is that during the pandemic, Masa also created options to study and work remotely from Israel. So you're in Israel, but you're working and studying remotely. Although if you come to Israel, guys, we're already past the pandemic. So you get that as a bonus as well. You don't need to pause your life. You don't need to know Hebrew to join, but you do get funding. So check them out. MasaIsrael.org slash T-W-O nice Jewish boys. MasaIsrael.org slash two nice Jewish boys. Again, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing good, doing good. First of all, if you can explain to the audience who's watching, guys, you can go to YouTube and watch this. Uh, what is it that you wear? I'm wearing a sudra. Uh, it's mentioned in the Talmud of how Jews used to dress. We talk about the tefillin, we talk about all sorts of stuff. And also mentions the sudra, which was the native head covering of the Jewish people. If you look historically at images, whether pictures or illustrations of big rabbis from Rabbi Kiva, Rambam, Rashi, all these different individuals, they're all wearing a sort of turban around their heads uh, and not a kippah. Even today, you know, rabbis like Baba Saleh not too long ago was also wearing a sudah on their heads. So why did we lose this and how did it get turned into a kippah? The Jews that were having an Ashkenazi experience where they were living in Europe, they minimized the sudah to hide their identity under a hat that would blend into their surroundings so that they wouldn't be persecuted. And the Jews that were living in Middle Eastern countries were treated as dimis, which is a second-class citizen status. And the sudra, or for them, the turban or kafia or whatever it was, was a, a symbol of honor. And the Jews were not allowed to wear it, so they removed it from us. So years ago, I had found a picture of my great-great-grandfather in Ujda in Morocco. And I saw that he was wearing a white you know, shawl or whatever on his head. And I asked myself, you know, this is not something Jewish. I've never seen this. And I looked into it and I found out that this is actually our culture that was minimized and removed. And part of why I wear it and why I've recreated it is to revive a part of our culture. You recreated it? Yeah. 
How? And uh, I partnered with a designer and uh, made certain symbols. Wrote Ami Salchai with a menorah, patterns of uh, Magen David, uh, and got it manufactured. And uh, now we're in production. Oh, really? So people can actually buy these? Yeah, it'll be ready in about two months. So it's a rooting merch, Amazing. basically. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not meant to make money. Of course, it will make money, but the goal is to revive a part of that culture, which is why uh, for two and a half years I've been in production because I wanted to find wow. the perfect place with the right material that does this honor because it's, for me, I see it as like after thousands of years of not having this element of our identity, finally it's coming back. So for me, it's way more important than just making money. That's so cool. We should, we should make a two nice Jewish boys suda. Yeah, it's not trademarked, <laughs> right? Or you guys should, uh, you know, Push all your audience to my sudra. <laughs> ah, no, no, no. We're gonna have a we'll do we'll sudras, do a discount code. Man. We'll do a discount. If you code. buy two, maybe if they buy one of ours, they Bundle. get one of yours. Yeah. Um. But but I I said it's safe it's safe to assume that it influenced maybe the kafia the Arabic kafia because it really reminds of it. Yeah, I mean, there are many different types of sudras, kafias, turbans. The Kurds have their own colors. Um. You know, there's. As you know, the Palestinian one, there's the Bedouin, Jordanian one. There's also all sorts of different colors. Um, and usually they have to do something with their national struggle or their national culture. Uh, so the Palestinian kafia, which is, you know, less than 100 years old, is a net of fishing. Unlike the ancient people. Yeah. Well, the nets of, <laughs> of fishing and olive branches. And so that's their design that was made and popularized mm -hmm. by Yasser Arafat, who, yes, was born in Egypt. So Yasser Arafat was actually just wearing a kippah. Yasser Arafat was wearing a Middle Eastern head covering that he, you know, put some Levantine symbology symbols on it um, and, you know, made it something that's a symbol of a collective people that ident identify as Palestinian today. Yeah. So wait, uh, before we move on, how can people eventually find it? Will there be a website? Is yeah. it, do you have a website? Yeah, so they can check out mysudra.com or on the Instagram account, mysudra. Ah, so how already. do you spell it yeah, though? So the website is not, it will be ready when we launch. But okay. it's M-Y-S-U-D-R-A. M-Y-S-U-D-R-A dot com. Yeah. Check it out, guys. So where were you during the operation? Were you in Israel? Yeah, I was in Israel on uh, Yom Yerushalayim. I was in Yerushalayim. Mm. Um, I heard the rockets and I was in shock. I hadn't, couldn't even come to mind that there would be rockets ever in Jerusalem. Uh, obviously, there's no accessible bomb shelter right away when you're on the street. So we all ran next to a wall. Um, and that started everything. And during most of the bombing, I was in Tel Aviv with my family because uh, my father and my brother right after me were in Costa Rica at the time. So uh, I was with my family, with my mom and my two younger brothers. And how did you guys uh, kind of experience the operation? Was it rough? Were you guys mostly in, the, in Tel Aviv? Yeah, mostly in Tel Aviv, although a few times I went back to Jerusalem, uh, obviously nonstop running back and forth to the bomb shelter. Um, and for me, you know, the war is not only physical, but it's also intellectual. It's also ideological. So it's also in the social media. You know, there was this you wave. You went to reserves <coughs> mode? I'm, I'm always ready for reserves mode. Miami Louim unit is uh, based with the north. If there's ever a war with Syria or Lebanon, that's what we get sent to uh, for Tzan Khanim. Um, but I wanted to, you know, defend Jewish people, defend Am Yisrael, um, and to transcend the sort of ideas that people are pushing to try to separate people and use a suffering that exists that Palestinians experience, but only to manipulate that, take all context out of it and to use it to target Israel. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, basically what's been happening. And, uh, you know, I've been creating content to, to fight that. So, so what kind of content were you creating during the operation? Um, many videos from, first of all, explaining what was going on from Sheikh Jarrah to what was happening on the Temple Mount, Al-Aqsa complex, whether it's the, uh, you know, arrest of people that were throwing rocks at Jews and police instigating, you know, a reaction and them taking that out of context, or fire being lit by Palestinians that were shooting fireworks at a tree to light it on fire, and then to catch a video of the Jews that were already dancing because it's Yom Yerushalayim. Um, and then back-to-back -back things, you know, showing the truth of what's actually going on, and then making videos of exposing individuals like Trevor Noah, um, that made a video, you know, taking out all context and pretending that, you know, it's it's a piece of cake to have rockets flying, uh, yeah. you know, onto you and minimizing our, our struggle and experience, which is a, you know, very clear thing that uh, anti-Semites tend to do, even though he's half Jewish. Um, See? Yeah. You knew that? 
think I might have heard it. Yeah, I don't remember if his. I think his father is Jewish. I'm not. Oh, yeah. I don't remember which parent, but I'm pretty sure his father is Jewish. Okay. But either way, you know, a lot. You, there's a lot of Jews even that are fully Jewish, yeah. um, that were born and raised Jewish that uh, still have internalized anti-Semitism and play a role of a token in saying, "Look, as a Jew, you know, this is you. you it's okay for you to be anti-Semitic." Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think there are those? We were just talking before about Gaber Mate, yeah. which had a viral video this week uh, where he was being interviewed by Russell Brand, which I'm not sure why anybody cares what that guy has mm. to say. But uh, Russell Brand was interviewing this Holocaust survivor, Gaber Mate, and Gaber Mate was talking about how he used to be a Zionist, and then he discovered that basically Israelis are committing genocide and... Mm. and uh, and how disgusted he is. So why do you think it is that some Jews, I don't know, internalize that? Yeah, well, first of all, to address the genocide thing, I mean, the Palestinian population has grown eightfold since 1948. So yeah, that's the very, uh, that's the very opposite of a, of a genocide. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't oppression. That doesn't mean that people haven't been killed. That doesn't mean that there isn't suffering. But when we take suffering and we try to make it into something that it isn't, not only are you avoiding dealing with what is actually happening, but you're also trying to use that real suffering in order to pin it against other people. But why is it that individuals like that turn against Israel? I don't know his personal story. I do have a lot of respect for him because he's done a lot of great work. I learned a lot about, for example, there's a healing medicine called ayahuasca that he was on a documentary called Spirit Molecule that I saw back in 2010. And that's the first time that I heard about him. So he's done a lot of fascinating work. Unfortunately, he has a lot of internalized anti-Semitism. Now, the reason for why people turn to that, it's sort of a how to deal with trauma. So for example, in psychology, let's say you have a woman who's dealing with a, an abusive husband. There are three ways in which this woman can react to her husband beating her. She can stand up and fight back and remove herself from the situation, which is what any woman or man in any sort of situation like that should do. The second thing that she could do is to make excuses for it. Oh, it's not that bad. It was just one time. Oh, I was just drunk. You know, make excuses for what's happening, which is clearly a problem, but to avoid the problem. Or she could blame herself. No, no, it was my fault. I should have done this. I should have done that. I shouldn't have spoken back. And that's sort of how Jews deal with anti-Semitism. You have Jews who stand up and fight back and remove themselves from the situation and don't take it. You have many Jews in the diaspora that just put their heads in the sand, pretend it's not a big deal, or avoid dealing with the situation. And then you have Jews that subconsciously side with their oppressors without even knowing it because it's just too hard to stand up or they have so much, even not only their trauma, but generational passed down trauma for 2,000 years of being hunted and exterminated and oppressed and persecuted and expelled. All that together sometimes does have an effect on a person. So I don't think we should look at those Jews as um, they're self-hating Jews because we wouldn't call a woman that's in that situation a self-hating woman. Uh, but we would say that she's a woman with a lot of internalized trauma that has led her to those conclusions of siding with her oppressor. But isn't that what it is? I mean, isn't a woman who, and it's a tragedy, but isn't a woman who, who has that psychology right mm -hmm. who who is getting beaten for example and says or it's my fault or a man or a man yeah or a man but i mean isn't a person in that situation who's saying you know it's my fault isn't that self-hatred i mean it's a tragedy but isn't that them hating themselves so much that they blame another person's abuse on themselves well do you think the source is because they hate themselves or because they just can't deal with what they're dealing with so it's just easier to pin it on themselves so I don't think the stem comes from really hating themselves. I think it's that they have internalized anti-Semitism. So they take the anti-Semitism that is, you know, projected onto them or the abuse that is projected onto them and they internalize it and they make it a part of themselves in order for them not to have to deal with it. And this I, is subconscious. It's not conscious. No, but I think you can't, you can't not deal with it if you love yourself. You get what I'm saying? Like if you actually believe in yourself and you stand up for yourself and you have some level of of uh self-esteem mm. then it's it's like a direct uh, correlation right the the same amount of self-esteem you have is the amount that you'll fight back against or you won't allow yourself to internalize hatred from outside right so i mean in the end i don't know i just i see these people like gabriel mate and it just drives me crazy how you know and it's not a new thing i have to say when you when you describe it like that i can't help i'm sorry but think about three kind of jews right those who fled Europe in the 30s, right? They saw what's coming and they said, screw this, I'm, I'm out of here. Those who ignored it and preferred, and those who eventually became couples mm -hmm. and collaborated with the Nazis. Yeah. 
So I guess it's in our blood, this division. I mean, yeah, this trauma that we face is nothing new. It's, you know, even before the Shoah, we went through a lot of trauma. So the reaction to that trauma is sometimes healthy, sometimes not healthy. But ca- how, here's the thing. Even if it's true, why don't people learn from history? You have so much we history. Te- we don't teach them. They, in Jewish education, whether in the diaspora or here, they teach Jews of how to be Jews in theory. So how to do Shabbat, how to do Tefillin, how to do the Seder, but not how to be Jews in practice. Not how to understand the traumas that we've gone through. Not how to be strong. Not how to do public speaking. Not how to debate. Not how to create coalitions. Not how to understand the counter-narratives that exist. We say never again as if it's some sort of magical saying or spell that because we say it, it's not going to happen. Rather than understanding that it's a commitment to make sure that in each generation we must make sure that it doesn't happen again. So we've not raised the younger generation that is strong. And if we ourselves don't respect ourselves, we can't expect others to respect us. You go to a college campus today or an intellectual space or a political space, someone says something against a person of color, against a woman, against someone from the LGBTQ plus community, against a Native American, against a Hispanic, I can guarantee you that most of those individuals from those groups are conditioned and prepared to deal with the xenophobia targeting their community. And I can guarantee you that the majority of the community and the students or the people in that conversation are also conditioned to recognize that as wrong and side with those people to say that that's wrong and we're not going to accept that. When you have someone saying something against Israel and the Jewish people, most Jews say nothing. So if we don't stand up for ourselves, how do we expect others to stand up for us? So it does start with us to be able to, like I said, the first way of dealing with trauma is standing up and fighting back. And we are not the people that for 2,000 years have been fighting back. Historically, yes. We're warriors, we're revolutionary, we come out of Egypt, we have the Maccabees, we fight the Germ- we fight the, the Greeks, we fight uh, the Romans, you know, we, we stand up to the Roman Empire, we have, you know, all sorts of stories of, of really showing strength. And to me, that's the image of a Jew, not 2,000 years being in the shtetl and putting your heads down. So I think that, you know, not only were we physically colonized, but we were psychologically colonized and spiritually colonized. I mean, look at the way that a lot of Jews dress, like Europeans. And look at the fact that we've divided ourselves into, uh, you know, Orthodox conservative reform. Where does that come from? From the church. You know, all these different things. We've, we've made Judaism, which is a way of life of liberation, to a way of life of restriction and a religion, which it's not. So there's a lot of things that we need to now unpack. We did start the, the decolonization process of coming back home, reviving our language, kicking off the British, restarting our civilization, but we're not done yet at all. Let's get back to... Wow. <clears throat> yeah, it, it was... This- very inspiring. Let's get back to the operation. So I'm, I'm thinking because we also guys played with some, uh, yeah, we did a video, several videos. Uh, we did a response to J- John Oliver, guys, if you haven't seen it uh, on our YouTube. And we got thousands of comments. So I'm going to throw at you like the most popular counter arguments mm-hmm. from the Palestinian side about this operation and you'll try to debunk them sure. okay so i think the fr- so there's Sheikh Jarrah basically mm-hmm. so what do you what do you say about Sheikh Jarrah sure so what matters is not only the what but the why because if you only care about the what but you don't understand why things are happening they don't truly care about the what because the goal is to change the what so people aren't suffering anymore so to understand why people are suffering or why there's a situation in the first place or how to change it you need to understand why it's happening so what's happening over there you have a community that is also called Shimon Tzadik. Everyone knows it as Sheikh Jarrah, but also it's called Shimon Tzadik. Can where, we, actually, before we continue, yeah. can we state the myth in one sentence? The myth is, uh, for those of you who don't know... But there's Palestinians being displaced from their homes because they're Palestinians and someone wants to come in to make it only for Jews. Yeah, and they're kicking out Palestinians from this uh, Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, and that's one of the primary causes of this uh, last conflict. Yeah. So this community was a community that had two Jewish quarters historically. Uh, there's a very famous and uh, noble and spiritual uh, Jewish leader or figure called Shimon Atzadik. Tzadik means a, a righteous man. And he has his burial place there. And there was a tradition of during his uh, anniversary of his death date that people would come and visit his grave. You had two Jewish quarters, a Jewish community in this place. In 1948, the Jordanian army conquers the entirety of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and take over this place and ethnically cleanse all Jews from the entirety of Judea and Samaria, entirety of Jerusalem, entirety of East Jerusalem, entirety of Sheikh Jarrah, Shimon Tzadik. And you have many Jewish families that lose their homes, homes that they bought, homes that they've built. Now, from 1948 till 1967, those homes are now given to Jordanian families. Why? Because Jordan is a monarchy, and the monarchy, when the army seized the homes, they probably gave it to family friends in order for them to have assets. Palestinians, 
that had either been displaced because they had heard rumors of Israelis coming and massacring people that were obviously false, left willingly, or some Palestinians were also kicked out because they had communities that were fighting each other and there were consequences to wars. And you had Palestinians that fled to Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, and that started renting out those homes from the Jordanian families. At no point did Palestinians own those homes. It went from Jews to Jordanian families, and those Jordanian families rented it out to Palestinians. Now, after 1967, when there's a war and Israel liberates Judea and Samaria and reunifies Jerusalem, those families that just 20 years ago owned those homes went to the Israeli courts and said, excuse me, these are our deeds. We own those homes. They were illegally taken from us, stolen from us from a foreign army, the Jordanians. We want our homes back. And from 1967 till 1982, there was due process after due process, appeals, proofs, lawyers, everything in court proving that these homes were owned by the Jews and at no point did the Jordanian army take it legally and at no point did they even transfer ownership to the Palestinians for there to even be a claim by the Palestinians that were living there. And so the courts ruled in 1982 that those homes belong to the Jewish families and that the rent, instead of now continuously paying to the Jordanian families, would now be paid to the Jewish families. And the rent would be protected. They wouldn't be able to go up. It would have to be respected. Their residency would be allowed. You know, even though someone can say you don't own the house, the owners can tell you to leave if they want to. The courts ruled that their residency must be respected and protected as long as they paid the rent. And for 39 years, the rent has not been paid. And there were warnings. There was due process again in courts. And the court said, if you do not pay your rent, you will be evicted. And now we're seeing the eviction of eight homes. We're talking about eight Out homes. Of Eight homes out of hundreds of homes, thousands of homes in this land. We're talking about eight houses. We're not talking about hundreds of, 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 of a whole community. We're talking about eight houses that were owned by Jews, taken by the Jordanian army, rented out to people. doesn't matter if they're Palestinian, if they're from Mexico, if they're, they're renting out to human beings. Those human beings are paying the rent, and then the ownership goes back to the original owners, and those human beings living in those homes choose to not pay their rent, and the courts tell them, if you don't pay your rent now, you're going to get evicted, and now they're getting evicted. So you know what the Palestinian will tell you? Maybe you're right, sure. but so many houses in Israel uh, where uh, their legal owners are mm -hmm. Palestinians, right? There's Chok Kadim. I don't know if, even how to translate this law, which basically says that all the houses that legally were owned by Palestinians are now owned by Jews, although they were taken illegally. So two things to that. First of all, that's a whole separate conversation, right? Homes that used to be owned by Jews and Palestinians is different than Jordanian army taking homes from Jews. We're not talking about a, a land dispute between Palestinians and Jews. We're talking about land dispute between the Jordanian army and Jews. So if the Jordanian army had taken homes of Palestinians, those Palestinians that would now be Israeli citizens would be able to go to the Israeli courts and do the same thing and get their homes back. We're not talking about the situation of 1948 where Jews and Palestinians lost each other's homes together without involving the Egyptian army, Jordanian army, or other armies. And in this conversation, we can talk about potential reparations or to find solutions or to give money. That's a valid conversation to have. It's a totally separate conversation to this. So whenever someone's bringing that up, it's to avoid actually addressing this one. Right. At no point did the Palestinians own those homes. So this is not an issue of a land dispute between ownership between Palestinians and Jews. This is a land dispute between the Jordanian army and the Jews that own those homes, that those homes were stolen, and the courts ruled that those homes are going back to the Jews. And now the people that were living there, doesn't like even if they were Jews that were living there, or Palestinians, or I mean, whatever they were, they're just not paying the rent. And I think there's something that a lot of people don't even know. I work a lot with Israelis and Palestinians day to day. I'm part of a movement called Habayit that works to unite community leaders on the ground. Um, and some of my friends, Palestinian counterparts, that went and met the families of Sheikh Jarrah, spoke to them and they said that the lawyers that they had appointed on this case were lawyers that were appointed by the Palestinian Authority. They could not choose their own lawyers. Mm -hmm. And in the court cases, there were several times where the Israeli government offered them to settle. You know, we'll give you X amount of money or we'll give you subsidies to go live somewhere else or you can live for free over there in an apartment. And they wanted to take it because they knew that they would lose the house and they would lose everything. And the Palestinian Authority lawyers said no. And when not. they say no, if you resist, you can find yourself in a pit. Right, you have no choice. And so they said no. And why did they say no? because they wanted to make this into an international s scandal and dilemma in order to use it for political reasons to kind of, you know, at the same time that we had this whole situation, there was the election that was supposed to happen for the Palestinian Authority. 
So all of a sudden, no one's talking about that. And now we're using this to kind of bring it to light and to create tensions between populations. And to be honest, I understand why a lot of Israeli Arabs, Palestinians, whatever one may choose to identify themselves as, why they're being so violent against Israelis is because they're being completely fed lies after lies. And imagine being told, you know, Palestinians are being kicked out because they're Palestinians and you believe it. Palestinians are not allowed to pray on uh, in Al-Aqsa because uh, the Israeli army doesn't want Muslims praying, and they believe it. Uh, Israelis are lighting up fires on a tree uh, and dancing with the, your fires in being lit on Al-Aqsa, and they're believing. And, and you tell them all these things, which are all complete fabrications, but if you actually believe it, of course you're going to go and go and be violent. So the, the problem is not necessarily their reaction because the reaction is a healthy reaction to them thinking that that's the problem. The problem is why are they being misfed? Why don't we have a clearer line of communication to expose what is right and what is wrong? And why are we allowing people to be able to play on things in order to get people to those conclusions? But wouldn't you say that they want to, they want to be fed in a way, because in, in today's, when you have internet and social media, mm -hmm. there isn't really something like they're being fed lies, right? If you want to know the truth, you can find out the truth by yourself. So it's not an excuse. Sure. So there's more to that. First of all, if you're told from your media, from social media, your TV, your newspaper, your friends, your family, your professor, your teacher, everything that you see goes aligned with a certain narrative, you're not going to think it's not true and you're not going to want to dig deeper because you really think it's the truth. So yeah, all the information is out there and there's no perfect ultimate truth. There's holistic truth includes all the truths put together. So there are some truths within their narrative, but they don't feel the need to look further because they truly feel that this is what's right. And also if someone comes out against them or even not even against them, normalizes relations with Israelis, when I work with Palestinians, when we put videos with them, we have to blur their faces and change their voices because of the threat that comes from the Palestinian Authority. Or I did a few events with Palestinian activists in the U.S. that are living there that are not under the threat of Hamas or the Palestinian Authority. And just because we did uh, a clubhouse session together, the person had um, booked events to speak for different groups on campuses that were Palestinian, and he got canceled because he spoke with me. And he didn't speak with me about, oh, I'm going to agree with you on everything. He disagreed on the things I had to disagree with. And he pushed his Palestinian narrative, but wasn't against my own narrative. And we had a very respectful and intellectual conversation. But just because you engage with Israelis, then all of a sudden you get canceled. So there's a reality that exists there that doesn't even permit people to be open-minded. And that's something that I think that Israel can change, at least on the ground. So, for example, if something were to happen to me in Uda there'd be a consequence. Hopefully, Bezat Hashem, nothing will happen. But to any Jew, that anything that happens, there's a consequence. right? If there's a terror attack or whatever, the IDF will go or Magav will go. Someone will go to find that person and there's going to be justice done. If something happens to a Palestinian that is speaking out on saying, we want to live with Israel, we're not against Israel, uh, we're not going to be tokens of Israel, we're going to talk about our Palestinian identity, we still need to talk about a lot of things that you may disagree with us, but we're not going to do it as a way to be against you, they disappear. And what happens? What does Israel do? Nothing about it. So one of the things that I, I often criticize what Israel should do is protect the freedom of speech of Palestinians. And if you protected the freedom of speech of Palestinians, you would allow, you would allow for thought leaders to grow, for them to maybe in the future be in charge of education or in charge of their communities and be able to change and at least allow someone that's growing up the option to choose a different ideology than just do nothing or hate the Jews. But that's a very colonialistic approach why is it a colonialistic approach to allow freedom of speech it's not yours their freedom of speech is not yours to allow or not allow if, if we are in power on our land that is our home we have the responsibility to protect all inhabitants of this land i'm not saying to force anyone to say whatever they want i'm saying protect freedom of speech for all but then you're basically saying annex the palestinian lands and the and the palestinian people well i would say that not, judea yeah, and samaria saying... is is judean lands okay yeah. yeah no no but first of all i'm guessing you're leaving gaza out of this for now for now yeah but okay. i do think eventually gaza should become a part of the land but then how do you i mean how do you do so okay so let, we're getting into a yeah, whole yeah. different <laughs> topic but i think it's though. interesting yeah let's talk about annexation yeah. how do you how do you go about that because you have probably two uh, about two million two and a half million in gaza right mm -hmm. and about two million in uh, the the numbers West are Bank. debatable by the way yeah but, yeah. but a, a couple of million mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. got a couple of million palestinians between the west bank and gaza how do you annex those lands when you already have two million uh, uh israeli arabs so combined it would be about four million mm -hmm. i mean you're dealing with like the classic argument 
just for our listeners, is that you're dealing with a demographic threat. So how do you... So some people call it restoration and not annexation because it's more so restoring land that was once a part of an indigenous civilization rather than just annexing a random piece of land that never had any connection to it. Um, but the demographic issue, I don't think, is that much of a threat because there are many ways to be able to create a structure that would be more fitting for both cultures and that allows us as Jews to experience the civilization as a Jewish civilization and allows Palestinians to fill their needs of how they want to see a Palestinian civilization. So for example, one thing that is very different between our cultures is how they want to be governed on the local level. When you go to Shrem, which they call Nablus, or you go to Hebron, or you go to Ramallah, or you go to Bethlehem, or you go to Yericho, it's families that run the cities. It's, Ma it's mafia. Okay, you can call it that. You can call it a form of like an emirate system where you have certain families that like run the, the area. Um, and that's how they govern themselves on the local level. I mean, you can call a king and queen a it's mafia. The same in Israeli you can, call, you can call the Knesset a big mafia. You know, technically, they oh, didn't. I mean, uh, the, you know, have you not seen what's, what uh. they've been doing? Um, regardless, you know, when, when it comes to that's how they want to govern themselves. On Maybe the, the new one. The new government maybe might be a mafia. Yeah, I think the, the system... No, no, the system no, no, it's not, I don't think it's comparable. Look, the, I think the system in the Knesset is, is a broken system in itself. I mean, we're going to go for sure to our fifth elections now, uh, without a doubt. And it's a system that's built to uh, force politicians to focus on the short term in order to get a return, in order to use that to get elected, rather than to focus on long-term solutions to make changes. Okay, but we digress. Let's get back okay. to annexation. So, so, for example... Um, an idea that will, I will they be able to sorry will okay, they okay. be able Let, to let's, vote let's start with this first of all no solution will come by just coming up with the terms on a piece of paper having people sign and pushing it onto people it's a process this idea that we're just going to come and impose something is not the way that it's going to be now any solution that has to come has to do two things for both peoples it has to fulfill the aspirations of both collectives israelis and palestinians and has to end the injustices that they both experience so for example a two-state solution does neither for either population it does not fulfill the aspirations of either, and it does not end the injustices. So we can throw that out of the, you know, right away. Okay. Now, if we want to find a solution, obviously just having the state of Israel and extending it to Gaza and the West Bank, which is what usually people think when they think of one state solution, that's not going to work either. Because obviously there'd be, you know, a situation where people feel that there's a demographic threat. There'd be, you know, a rivalry of one versus the other. It wouldn't actually fix the problems. So I think a valid idea, this is not an idea that I push, but I think it's one that we can theorize and, and think about. And maybe it can give us inspiration for something else is a sort of federation plan. So, for example, let's take the, there was one version of the federation plan that it was very interesting that I heard. Um, you have area A, B and C. In Yudav Yishai Fleischel or something, right? Fleischman. Many people have been we talking had, about uh, uh, Federation. We had him on the podcast a while ago. Yeah. He's a good friend of mine, Yishai. Yeah. Um, so you have area A, B, and C. So let's say you take area C and you already annex it as a part of, uh, as a part of Israel because it's mostly Jews living in area C. And so you're left with area A and B. Let's say you divide it into eight different regions, eight different zones, eight different emirates, eight different federations, whatever you want to call it. What's most important for those communities is to have government on the local level. They want those families to run the towns. In fact, one of the big reasons for why the um, Palestinians in Hebron reject Bibi, besides everything else, is because he allowed the Hebron clan to be under the submission of the Palestinian Authority, whereas before they weren't. And they don't like that because they don't want to be under the submission of the Palestinian Authority. They want to govern That's themselves. That's the Hebron ab Agreement, yeah, 97. Yeah. They want it to be under Hebron, under those families, not under the Palestinian Authority. So if we can understand already that for them, when you go into Hebron and you ask them, who is the family that runs this town? Who is the head? Who is the second? Who is the third? They all know. You go to Tel Aviv and you ask someone, who's the mayor of Tel Aviv? Almost nobody knows. And if they know because they heard it one time, they don't know what that person does and what the role is and how much they can do. So the need for a sort of government or sovereignty is, is different. We need more nationalistic domestic control they need more local control first so, of all everyone in tel aviv knows who's the, no, they no. Don't. the mayor i think most people don't no we guys come on dude they, they know don't. they know they and know. if it's in tel aviv maybe because tel aviv specifically tel aviv you have uh, politi more politically aware citizens there but is no in no, no, haifa no, no. they know in haifa everybody knows nobody knows man guys come on everybody knows. knows you think everybody's like mayor? you no. nobody knows who the mayor is they know 
They might not know what he does, but they know who he is. Uh, but so we can just, uh, we just can just agree to, make, to disagree. And yeah. let's say take out Tel Aviv for a second, which we might disagree on. If you go to Herzliya or to Anana or to Kfal Saba or to all those other places, the vast majority of people, not saying nobody, but the vast majority of people do not know who the mayor of that town is. I disagree, but never mind. Okay. But so, so the point is, what I'm trying to say is that yeah. for them, local power is way more important than for us. So mm -hmm. the idea that was presented is let's take area A and B. You would divide it into eight different emirates. They would have local autonomies where they would have more control over, uh, you know, infrastructure, education, security, movement. resources. Movement would be free. No walls, Out no checkpoints. In. Out and in, doesn't matter. It's one land. And you'd have no walls, no checkpoints, no nothing. Also to Tel Aviv. Also to Tel Aviv, absolutely. This land is one and it should You're be crazy. one. You're crazy. Absolutely not. It's crazy that Wait. we have walls in our country. Hold on, hold on. Let me, let me, let me break down okay. the system. Okay, that's, okay, okay. Again, this is not my system. This is a, a theory that I think we should look yeah. at it as saying, wow, this is a different idea outside of the one state, two state, black and white paradigm that we've been fed our entire lives. So you take the eight different emirates, okay? Each emirate, let's say, would have two honorary seats in the Knesset, so they would at least have representation, but not based on their demographics, because they would have more local power and less national power. But it wouldn't be based on who you are, but where you live. So if I, as a Jew, were to go move to Hebron, I would vote now locally and no longer for the Knesset. And if a Palestinian were to go move to Tel Aviv, they would vote for the Knesset and no longer locally. So you'd have checks and balances of two different governments, two different parties with, or branches within one government. But you do vote locally in Tel you, Aviv. You vote for the mayor. Right. You currently. vote for the mayor, but the mayor has a lot less power ah, than okay. the person over okay. there that would be the equivalent and so, would have more local because power. Because there they kill you if you... No, there would be no more of that. <laughs> okay, no. so I think that that's getting to the crux of it. I hope I didn't offend you with the crazy remark. It was just for, no, okay. for the... I think, I think that that's getting to the crux of it, though, because the issue here, and this is what I want to discuss, is that... In the end, there is uh, a people, right? Mm -hmm. In order for you to have a, a uh, stable, uh, um, a stable nation, mm -hmm. right? You have to have some basic uh, uh, values, some basic common, common values, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Like in the United States, there's the idea of freedom of speech, freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, expression, right? The right to bear arms now is a big one, but the idea that you are an individual with individual liberties. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I don't know if that. I think that there is, there's this divide between the Palestinian people and their culture and their common shared values, and the Jewish people and their culture and their common shared values that I'm not sure can be bridged in this like artificial way, right? In the end, you see, I mean, the two members well, what of are those Knesset, differences? what I'm saying- What are those two, differences? I, I mean, I don't want to get like too controversial here, but I think it's a, a, it's a, a worshiping of life and, uh, and freedom as opposed to a worshiping of death and-, uh, and, and battle. I mean, if you look war. at- What I'm saying is, look, I think that, okay, Hamas and, and, and the PA are not exactly democratically uh, um, uh, validated, right? I mean, the last time there was elections in both places was like 2005. Mm. But they were, there were elections. So right now in, in the West Bank, they might uh, want Hamas, but it's, it's Hamas or PA. So what I'm saying is those two members of Knesset, you'd have to be comfortable with the fact that they would be Hamas members. No, because you wouldn't have a need for Hamas. The reason you have Hamas is it's an ideology of intifada, shaking off the Jews, removing them, because they have been taught since the British that the Jewish presence here is basically an extension of the West. They're coming to colonize and they want to take it over and we need to push them off and shake them off. And if we terrorize them, eventually they'll leave because terrorism is a sort of anti-colonial tactic. The Jews did it against the British. They blew up their oil refinery. They blew up the King David Hotel. They killed British soldiers until the British said, listen, it's not worth staying here anymore. We're losing more money than we were making. It's just not worth it. We're leaving. So they're using terrorism to get us to leave. But they don't understand that using this tactic doesn't work against native people because native people, no matter what you do, are going to die on this land, whether through old age or through fighting. So when you're attacking a native people with anti-colonial tools, they're just going to respond 10 times stronger because they are 10 times stronger. So their approach is them not understanding us. And the reason for why so many people come to a conclusion of we need to be against Israel is because their vision, their view, their understanding is that the reason they suffer is because Israel exists. 
But fundamentally, to their core, to their culture, to their identity, you don't need to end Israel in order for them to move forward. What they need is equal rights. What they need is to be able to move from the river to the sea freely, to be able to have dignity, to be able to have an army that doesn't control them, but respects and protects them. But the army, the army controls me. The police really. control me. Not really. The army they protects you. They do, and you. I'm okay with The it. army protects you. The army doesn't protect them. I'm not saying that we can't give the it context. Actually, a little bit it does. No, but not really. About they, they shoot each other. There's like guns that are going wild over there. And they, uh, no one is going to go and take them. There are people that disappear. No one is going to. Not really at all. And that doesn't make mean the IDF is evil at all. Like, you know, I served in the army. But the reality is their experience of the army is an army that controls them. So they need to be able to live in a society where they have dignity. And if they were able to have that, they would have no problem with, for the most part, I can't speak on everyone. In my opinion, for the most part, most people wouldn't have a problem if this land was also called, for us, was called Israel. For them, they call it Palestine, whatever you want to call it, as long as the land has respect and fulfills their needs. And I don't think our needs actually contradict themselves. You don't think? I don't think so. But what if, but can you at least acknowledge yeah. the possibility that let's say we do all the things you suggest mm -hmm. and now turns out you were wrong okay. in your assumptions. Listen. Wait, 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 let me finish the point. Sure. So uh, you were wrong and now they have all the rights you gave them and they still want to kill all of us, okay? So you think that... Do, wait, do you acknowledge the option that this is a possibility? I acknowledge the option that there's war and if there's war, we'll win, okay? However, there's options that you have on the table. Either they kill us all, we kill them all, they kick us all out, we kick them all out, we continue the status quo, or we do something revolutionary, we change and we try to find a way to live together, which has never tried, been tried before. But it's a very risky route. What? I mean, because it's, it's, so it has because been tried before. I don't, when has it been tried? Oslo. Oslo, two-state solution is not an attempt to actually create a no. solution. Oh, but you can't say that no, it wasn't an attempt. No, people that don't really represent the Palestinian people coming and signing an American piece of paper to divide this land, which most people on the Jewish side and most people on the Palestinian side do not want, is not an attempt to create a solution. Okay, so another another attempt to it was tried. No, until wait, let's, let's hold on. Let's take it slowly first. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's, let's actually... No, because he said it was tried. To the point. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm with you. It was tried. Okay, not Oslo, but we did... Uh, there was a point, and I think until between 67 maybe, and I don't know, when we had sovereignty over, for example, Gaza. Gazans could, could go in. We went to Gaza, right? Mm -hmm. We ruled Gaza. It was very similar to what you're, you're describing because they had freedom of, of movement. And still, you had they were violent. Against they didn't us. really have freedom of movement. They were, you know, not Israeli. They worked citizens. in Israel. They okay, so they'd come and work. Just so you have Palestinians coming and working today in Israel, but they're not a part feeling that this is a country that is their country. They want to feel like the same way the Duzim, right? The Duzim are not Jewish. They're not a part of Am Yisrael, but they're a part of the civilization of Israel. But and, uh, but you, it's again a bit colonialistic because you say they want to feel this, they want to feel no, that. No, I'm speaking to you based on actually me meeting and working with Palestinians day to day. So I'm not a Palestinian, I can't speak on behalf of them, but I can't speak on behalf of knowing from my experiences what I think that they want, which is to be able to live freely on this land. So it's actually anti-colonial. I mean, colonization is not even a conversation here because both Israelis and Palestinians are from this land. So that already throws out the word colonization. However, it's not a, a, a sort of I'm imposing onto you. It's I want to understand what are your needs and I'm not going to give up they on might my... They deceive you when they... Look, so you can't live life like that. I mean, you know, so, so the Israelis, the left and the right can't work together because they might deceive each other. The religious and the secular can't come find Sounds... a way to live together because they might deceive each other. So let's just like go to war and every group that is different, then we just go and uh, completely eradicate them. Fight is right. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think that the the idea that they might deceive us is. I think that, I think it's like I would say that the it's a it's a risk assessment, right? Mm. Like, and I would say that it's not that they might. That there's very good evidence that that it's not that they would deceive us. That it wouldn't work. That they're that they're you you think that the reason that uh, the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip voted in Hamas in uh, 2005 or whenever it was. Uh, and the reason that the PA was elected and the reason that if there were elections held in the West Bank today, Palestinians would either vote, uh, would either vote, right, the PA, Fatah, Hamas, Baraguti, right? They would vote like these. Not for the libertarian. They man. would vote yeah, these awful, those are the options awful that they have. people. Those are the only options that they have. Okay, but I'm saying, doesn't a people 
like uh, surface their leaders, right? No, Aren't... they don't. In that society, they don't. In that society, if you say anything outside of that, you're rejected. But and why not is beca- that? Because they've already built a, a system that in their education, and this is not the Palestinians, this is the current Palestinian leaders that are, and the past Palestinian leaders as well. They built a system that in the schools, the schools are named after terrorists, the soccer teams are named after terrorists, the education is to reject Israel and to hate Israel. All the suffering that you experience is all because of Israel. In 1948, they talk about the Nakba, but they don't talk about the fact that there were surrounding Arab countries that were attacking Israel and siding with Palestinian communities and fighting Israel. And of course, in a war, you have consequences that are happening on both sides. They don't provide them with context, so this sort of society has been raised on a hatred and a rejection of the other. The fix is not, hey, we're going to come here and do this, 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 and it's fixed. It's a long-term fix. It's a generational fix, but it's not impossible. People aren't born to hate. You know, to, to think that Palestinians, which are, by the way, our cousins, because 30 to 60% of Palestinian ancestry is actually Jewish. So it's not just uh, their Arab cousins, like Jews and Arabs, that they actually have Jewish DNA in them, okay, and Jewish ancestry. The reality is that no one is born evil or hating. That's, or, I think, where the, the seed of the disagreement is. What? I think we're born evil. You think people are born yeah, evil? Yeah, original sin, man. We're born evil. Like and, all and, of us or specific groups? Everybody's born evil. Okay. I mean, come on. Two-year-olds are like the worst people ever. Why? Because they scream and <laughs> they, cry. They're like the most. I was Violent. just listening to a Jordan Peterson uh, podcast. Yeah. It's actually amazing. And he was talking about the sociologist. Two-year-olds are like like literally the most violent people that exist on earth, right? Mm. They like, if they were adults, they would be awful human beings. But it's socialization. It's education that makes us better people, that teaches us to like control our or basic evil okay, so instincts. And, and just to add this, education starts at home. And in your home, between four walls, the PA is not there. It's the parents' responsibilities. And Palestinian parents can choose to educate their children differently. You're making critiques that I don't disagree with you on. However, if that's the case, could it be that if a society were to teach something different, something more positive, could it be that Palestinians would not be as you say, turning to thinking these things yeah, that are bad. I think that's where I go to Noor's place. Okay, so, it's, it's but, not society. But it that... is possible to, to get there, right? It is if, possible for... It, it, there's only, no like... A... It, only naturally. Only if they choose okay, to so, change their Sababa, course. So it's possible. It's not impossible. Yes. Right? Yes, yes okay, it is possible. So, so let's look at America around 60, 70 years ago where you didn't have civil rights. You didn't have a right to vote for women, whereas today, growing up in this society, in this world, when we think about that, it's like, yeah, we acknowledge because we learn history, but it's kind of crazy to think that you didn't had different rights because of people's skin color, right? That you couldn't go on a bus at the same spot, you couldn't drink from the same water fountain, you couldn't live in the same communities, you couldn't go to the same schools. Like That's kind of crazy to think about. And how has society within 70 years gone from that point to this point? Whereas if someone says something racist, there's a social reaction like crazy. A student once said like a comment or there was like a text message as a joke that was pretty racist comment to make. It got leaked. The university dean at Columbia University sent an email to everyone saying we're condemning this. You know, how, how could we have in seven years a society going there? Why? Because people, first of all, that were fighting for black rights, mostly black people, but also their allies, stood up, put their lives on the line, even gave up their lives sometimes and changed the culture changed the society, changed the way people saw the world, educated people differently. And naturally, as the youth started to grow, there was more young people, more younger people replacing the older people. This pop culture changed. And politicians either had to support now what was most popular, which is something more progressive in the way of accepting and, and being for civil rights, or eventually those that youth eventually replaced the politicians. So it's not impossible to change a society from seeing something to seeing something else. We just have to create the conditions for it. So like I said, there's no reality, in my opinion, where we're going to just execute each other. There's no reality where we're just going to displace each other. Yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I think that you're putting too much weight on this like uh, amorphous thing called society that like... Like they're like like the politicians and the educators, right? The even even the even a teacher at school, I think, has much more limited ability to influence a child in the way that he grows up to see the world than the parents at home. And I think that like in the end, society starts from the values that we've grown up with. And yeah, you're right. It takes leaders to change that. 
but it takes leaders on like a much smaller scale. So I, don't, yeah. I don't see it as trickle down. No, I no, see it more as like trickle I, up. I, I agree with that. I'm, that's why I believe in grassroots activism. I believe in, you know, finding the community leaders of these different places that are the role models, that are society leaders, and then going and creating coalitions, having each other understand, creating a movement together, changing the structural problems that are existing in this society, and then slowly changing things. But that's what I'm saying is that, and that's the, I guess, I guess this was Noor's point about that, how it's a bit colonial. Because it's like, we're going to come in, and the idea of empowering people. No, no, people, but we have the power today. Yeah, but okay, fine. So, but I'm so saying we have even, the responsibility to use the power. Yeah, to, that's what I'm to, saying. That I think the idea of coming in from the outside, no, but empowering, having power, power is not what makes you colonial. If the Native Americans are able to free Standing Rock and to remove, you know, the things that were happening there, that's not colonialism. If the, the Tibetans go back to Tibet, that's not colonialism. If the Maoris or the Aboriginals were able to get more rights of what they wanted, that's not colonialism. No, no, no. This isn't. Col I'm no, not talking. So, so I'm the, not saying Zionism is colonialism. No, no. But what I'm saying is that the Jews taking responsibility with the power that they have on this land of making sure that the society is just, on making sure that the bad elements on both sides, not just Palestinians, there are like forces and voices on the side of the Israeli that say we need to kill all Palestinians. You know, people like that have to go. People like that. This so is you don't have a problem with us kind of, uh, with us. Indoctrinate. No, yeah. not indoctrinate. In a way. No, because you're. I'm saying open it up. The reason for why there's this ideology is because it's completely closed. There's no freedom of speech. There's no freedom of expression. There's no option for a different way of thinking. Or that's just what they think. For now. And the reason they think that is because they see all of their suffering because of Israel. So for them, the way the suffering ends is without Israel. If Israel took its responsibility and removed that suffering. Just imagine, let's, I, let's take this to the end, uh, because and if you want to hear the debunk, debunction of uh, other myths about the Gaza war, go to Rudy's uh, Facebook page. Let's <laughs> okay. continue with this debate. Sure. Let's, I'm sorry, I have to do this. I don't know if it's a rhetorically... A good tool, but let's Nazis. just say yes. You're going there. I'm going there. It's what is this gold? I'm going there. Rule? I'm going the there. The second yes. you bring up the the, <laughs> the Nazis, okay. Um, like like the only Rudy of the 30s would say, let's uh, let's let's explain to them no why they're wrong no. But the way we no, 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 we no. explain to them is by killing millions of them. No, That's no. the only way they understood it. Even that didn't help because I'm, I'm today not, there's I'm still not saying many of them are Nazis. I'm not saying speak to Hamas. No, but Nazism was enrooted in the society, in German society. Listen, you, you will always have anti-Semitism in all societies. It's up to the Jewish people to get the society to recognize that anti-Semitism is bad. And we didn't do our job. And the Nazis did their job. They educated, they controlled the textbooks, they convinced people, they manipulated people, they created coalitions, and we didn't do anything about it. We just let it happen. So I'm not saying go and speak and make peace with the Nazis. I'm saying go and speak to the rest of the public to make sure that they reject but, and understand the, why the Nazis are wrong. But the public were the Nazis. The Nazis were the public. No, the, the it's public not that you had the, pub the public were manipulated by the Nazis. No. Look at look, okay. Ten years after the Nazis, Germany was supporting the state of Israel. You know, talk about talk about revolutionary change. If enemies could could be able it, to go and support the country that they were just two seconds ago burning. I think that cousins can come on the ground and try to find but a way to live together. That's a great example because you know, uh, in uh, actually in West German uh, government in the fifties, like thirty, forty, fifty percent were Nazis. Okay, so their support was a charade. It was for for interests, and it didn't really represent what they believed. And I think it's it's a big it's a big uh, mistake to assume to separate. The people from from the political reality and and I think it's it's exactly would you say that the majority of people today in Germany are Nazis I would say that a majority of people today hold the same rooted culture that led to Nazism what does that mean it means that they're conservative they're nationalists does that mean being and Nazi? they don't want foreigners to live next door Okay. Does, okay. Does that mean wanting to eliminate all Jews from the world? It means that I I think that they would rather, let's say, they have like a Muslim pro problem right now. Most of them would rather they would not live in Germany. And if they could, they would put them all in camps and deport them. Maybe they wouldn't exterminate them this time. But I do think that in, their culture goes there still because they're nationalist 
and they don't that's how they are that's how they've been and peop, i don't believe people change in 70 years mm. essentially but i think it's 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 I, I wrong think people can change welcome to naor's pessimism i think i think people can change in, <laughs> in a few minutes but um. okay so we'll we'll, we'll We'll agree to disagree, as you say, but but I, I think historically it's wrong to say, at least about German Germans, that they were like these sheep that were led by this tyrant. I just and, see it uh, as you go 20 years before the Shoah, you go 20 years after the Shoah, and the population is very different than during the Shoah. I the German think. population. The German population. That doesn't mean you won't find elements of what you're saying of being nationalistic. That doesn't mean you won't find people being conservative, but the desire to be what was the Nazis of like having this pure Aryan race and massacring and killing every single Jew in the world didn't exist like it did 20 years before and didn't doesn't exist like it did you know, now and 20 years after. I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, meaning people can be manipulated, but there does have to be some underlying cultural uh, uh, basis for it for them to be manipulated to that extent, sure, sure. right? Like I don't think that the Jewish people have it in them to round up the Palestinians in camps and exterminate them. No. I don't see that happening because I don't think there's anything well rooted, even if there was the most conniving manipulative evil manipulator in the, at the head of the government i don't think there ever would be because i don't think the jewish people would would bring that about but but at the same time like people can be manipulated and just because the german people 70 years ago murdered six million jews there's a whole lot of difference between having that like deep-seated cultural problem and not acting on it like I think it's somewhere in the middle. I mean, if we go before the Germans, the Spanish, you know, the Spanish had the Inquisition, and what about the pogroms in, uh, you know, Russia and Ukraine and all those different countries? Yeah. Does that mean that still today people hate people? Yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't think that the majority of people hate, um, and I don't think the majority of people would do the same thing that they are today. Then things were different. People got manipulated. The problems of a society were pinned on the society, and it's usually when a society goes to the extremes. On the extreme right to the extreme left, the thing that they have both in common is that the Jew is the problem. The extreme right takes the problems of the society, economic problems, disease, war, whatever it is, and they blame the Jew for it. And the extreme left is similar but different. The left has, you know, they, they see themselves as having more values. They care about human rights, justice, all these different things. And so the extreme left, which isn't the left, will say, okay, let's look at our societies in Europe. We have apartheid, genocide, colonization, racism, all these different things that white societies are responsible for. Instead of dealing with it, let's pin that on someone else. Let's pin that on the Jews. And that's what the yeah. far left's anti-Semitism is. So when you have societies that are going to the extremes, yeah, the Jew is going to be seen as the problem. And I think there's a, you know, a, a Kabbalistic reason for why the Jews are always pinned for the problems of the world. That's a whole other conversation if you want to have it. But the reality is that if we don't allow those extremes to take control, if we narrate our own story, if we are able to create coalitions and expose bad voices that will always exist but not allow them to rise to power and to control the society, that would be taking the future into our hands, which is something that is very rare that the Jewish people have done in the past 2,000 years. We did it for the first time in 1948. Before that, we refused to do it. I think that's also, by the way... And a, final point? I think that's also part of the reason, and I agree here with Rudy, that, that the Holocaust was even a possibility and that 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 germans rounding up muslims is not gonna actually ever happen i agree and i and i think I it's agree. because the jews were seen maybe rightfully so as impotent yeah right they I, were 100%. not seen as a people 100%. that would fight back and of we didn't course. all that uh, all of that course. much there were certain instances but the germans know that if they were to round up muslims there would be suicide bombers in berlin and in hamburg yeah. and in, tomorrow and not that that's a good thing, but it's just a fact on the ground. Mm -hmm. Udi, it was inspiring. Very, very interesting conversation. Uh, where can people check you out? On all social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, whatever social media, just type in my name, Rudy Rockman, and there's my content there. Okay, amazing. And the, um, again, Get Sudra. Sudra. Yeah. What is it? My Sudra. My Sudra. Just go on Instagram, My Sudra, and when we release them, they'll be there. And of course, post a story with the Sudra and tag Rudy. 
so that yeah. the movement will yeah. come about or just uh you know be able to share it to other people that yeah. you know we're people from this land we have our own culture and we need to continue on the path of decolonization because the last chapter of jewish history i think was zionism to get back to this land and to free Zion, Yerushalayim. and i think since 67 we kind of haven't been doing anything what are we doing what is the next chapter are we supposed to be a Jewish country or what does that even mean are we supposed to be a country like anyone else or do we have a special purpose and because we're not united with a common vision then the internal ideological tribes of Israel that we've become today the right the left the religious the secular are all fighting because we haven't been focusing on uniting in order to move forward so we need to decolonize the elements of our culture that has been colonized over 2,000 years of diaspora and start figuring out how do we create something that unites us all that allows us to move forward and whenever we have that as Ami said doesn't matter how hard the situation is, we move forward. In 1948, we didn't have an easy life, but we were all united, so no one was complaining then. Today, in 2021, 5781, look at outside, the modern civilization, first world country, all these different benefits that we have, and everyone's complaining as if, you know, this is a horrible situation. And it's because there's not something that's uniting us greater than a war. So we need to find something that's not negative that unites us, something that's positive. And I don't have all the answers for that, but that's the conversation that I think our generation needs to have. Respect. Word. Respect. Okay. Um, Thank you so much for coming. Before we go. Yes. Before we go, guys, we are sponsored, as we mentioned, by Massah Israel Journey. Check them out at MassahIsrael.org slash two nice Jewish boys spelled out T-W-O, nice Jewish boys. Yes. Again, MassahIsrael.org slash two nice Jewish boys. Uh, check them out for great opportunities here in Israel. And the forward. Yes, we're sponsored by The Forward as well. Uh, Forward is a great uh, source for news, for opinion, all through a Jewish lens. Check them out at forward.com and go to forward.com slash partner offer with the promo code 2NJB to get an exclusive offer for 2NJB listeners. Six months for 15 bucks. Yes. It's a good deal. Yep. Also, israelnationalnews.com, Arutz Sheva. Check them out for uh, great content in English about Israel. Also, their Facebook page, Arutz Sheva. Highly recommended. And last but not least, ajn.timesofisrael.com, the Australian Jewish News. ajn.timesofisrael.com. Check them out. And of course, last... we accept donations, yes. guys. So help us out. Go to twinjb.com slash donate and so- throw some money at our direction. Woody, <laughs> thank you so much for Duh. coming. Thank Duh. you, man. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.